You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. Chapter 3. The Age of Philanthropy. Andrew Carnegie once said, I resolved to stop accumulating and begin the infinitely more serious and difficult task of wise distribution. Case 2. John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil. The name Rockefeller conjures up images of wealth, success, monopoly, the American dream, and philanthropy. This is largely thanks to John D. Rockefeller, born in 1839 in New York and regarded by many as a business icon, a hero of industrialization, an ambassador for capitalism, the wealthiest man in history, and the original great-grandfather of philanthropy. But this is not the whole story. What makes him problematic, and why he continues to inspire ambivalent reactions, according to biographer Ron Chernow, is that his good side was every bit as good as his bad side was bad. Seldom has history produced such a contradictory figure. As with so many mythical figures, Rockefeller's story has humble beginnings. Chernow describes him as the son of a flamboyant, bigamous snake oil salesman and a pious, straight-laced mother. Perhaps more kindly, his father described himself as a botanic physician, so we can infer that he made his living selling herbal elixirs of one kind or another. The family settled in Cleveland, Ohio, just around the time that the great railroads were being built and the Industrial Revolution was making its way across the Atlantic. John Davison was a bright kid, especially good with numbers, but like so many children of that era, his energies were channeled into work rather than study from a young age. As a result, he quickly learned some fundamental lessons of business. There is a story of him at age 12 taking $50 that he earned from selling turkeys and loaning it to a neighboring farmer at 7% interest. The impression was gaining ground with me, he later reflected, that it was a good thing to let the money be my servant and not make myself a slave to the money. Rockefeller's first proper job was as an assistant accountant, age 16, working for a small produce commission firm where he relished, as he said, all the methods and systems of the office. After working for three months, and no doubt influenced by his Baptist upbringing, he showed his first philanthropic tendencies, donating 6% of his salary to charity. By the time he was 20, he had upped his tithe to 10%, setting the pattern for a lifetime of generosity. It is often said that those who wish to reap the rewards first have to be brave enough to take risks. In Rockefeller's case, this meant striking out on his own in 1859, aged 20. Together with a young English partner, Maurice Clark, he set up a company, Clark and Rockefeller Produce and Commission, selling farm implements, fertilizers, and household goods. Having established himself independently, his real breakthrough came when he took an even bigger leap into the emerging oil business. 
When Rockefeller established Standard Oil in 1870, the industry was like the untamed frontiers of the Wild West. There were very few rules, the market was hugely volatile, and there was no shortage of unscrupulous characters and shady wheeling and dealing afoot. By all accounts, Rockefeller resolved to both join them and beat them. One of his first clandestine acts was to support a railroad cartel to control freight rates. Quick success set a pattern for growing his oil empire, which biographer Siegel describes as a self-reinforcing cycle of buying competing refiners, improving the efficiency of operations, pressing for discounts on oil shipments, undercutting the competition, making secret deals and raising investment pools. His hardball tactics earned him notoriety in the industry. Over a four-month period in 1872, in what was later known as the Cleveland Conquest or Cleveland Massacre, Standard Oil had absorbed 22 of its 26 Cleveland competitors. Rockefeller's expansionist agenda followed a predictable pattern. He would make what he considered a fair offer for a rival business, with the threat that if they refused, he would drive them into bankruptcy through predatory pricing, and then buy up their assets for a song at an auction. It was not an entirely greed-driven obsession, rather he saw himself as the industry's saviour, an angel of mercy, weeding out the weak and growing a strong, efficient and competitive industry. The strategy worked. Through horizontal integration, bold efficiency drives, and ruthless supply chain bargaining, Standard Oil brought order to a chaotic industry and drove down the price of oil. It developed over 300 oil-based products, from tar and paint to Vaseline and chewing gum. By the end of the 1870s, the company was refining over 90% of the oil in the US, and Rockefeller had become a millionaire but his success was not without its critics. In 1879, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania indicted Rockefeller on monopoly charges, and soon other courts in other states followed suit. In 1880, New York World characterized Standard Oil as, and I quote, the most cruel, impudent, pitiless, and grasping monopoly that ever fastened upon a country. Apparently unfazed, Rockefeller replied that, in a business so large as ours, some things are likely to be done, which we cannot approve. We correct them as soon as they come to our knowledge. Perhaps the ongoing controversy did take its toll, however. From the early 1890s, his health began to suffer, and he had a partial nervous breakdown, losing all his hair, including his eyebrows. By the mid-1890s, Rockefeller retired from business and began devoting himself to distributing the estimated $1.5 billion he had accumulated through a lifetime of commercial ventures. His approach to philanthropy set the benchmark for generations to come. First, he appointed a professional, Frederick T. Gates, over a hundred years before his unrelated namesake would take over the mantle of master philanthropist. He appointed him to manage and distribute his wealth, a task that later fell to his son, John D. Rockefeller Jr. As with his commercial ventures, John D. Sr. was obsessed with the effectiveness of his donations and the efficiency with which they were administered. 
His first priority was education, and he made his approach clear. He said, To help an inefficient, ill-located, unnecessary school is a waste. It is highly probable that enough money has been squandered on unwise educational projects to have built up a national system of higher education adequate to our needs, if the money had been properly directed to that end. Despite his conservative upbringing, Rockefeller was progressive in the causes that he supported. Among his many major donations to educational institutions, including, among others, the universities of Chicago, Yale, Harvard, and Columbia, in 1884 he funded Spelman College in Atlanta for African-American women. Realizing that social problems cannot be tackled piecemeal, he also established the General Education Board, to promote education at all levels right across the country. Through the board, Rockefeller established the collaborative principle of philanthropy, whereby his funding of free professional advice for improving instruction and education was supplemented by local money to build the high schools. Rockefeller's involvement in education demonstrated keen insight into philanthropy that addresses root causes rather than symptoms. Not only did he anticipate that education would have beneficial multiplier effects on people's general quality of life and the economy, but he realized that, as in business, in education you get what you pay for. Hence, in 1919, he donated $50 million to the board to raise academic salaries, which were very low in the wake of the First World War. Rockefeller was also able to put aside his personal biases in support of larger causes. For example, he reached beyond his paternally inspired preference for homeopathy and became a benefactor of medical science founding the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research in New York in 1901 and the Rockefeller Sanitary Commission in 1909, an organization that eventually brought the hookworm infection that had long played the American South under control. Another principle that Rockefeller built into his charitable activities was the importance of beneficiary support, or what we might today be calling stakeholder engagement. In particular, he introduced the conditional grant, which required the recipient to, and I quote, root the institution in the affections of as many people as possible who, as contributors, become personally concerned and therefore may be counted on to give to the institution their watchful interest and cooperation. At the same time, he was conscious of the dangers of donor dependency, stating that, and I quote, Charity is injurious unless it helps the recipient to become independent of it. Much of Rockefeller's philanthropic legacy came together in the Rockefeller Foundation, established in 1913 to continue and expand the scope of the work of the Sanitary Commission in the areas of health, education and the arts. He is said to have given away $540 million over his lifetime and died in 1937, aged 98, with a residual estate worth only $26 million. More important even than his individual contribution, he instilled the philanthropic tradition in his family with his son, Junior, giving away over $537 million over his lifetime 
and one of his grandsons, David Rockefeller, donating about $900 million to date. A Rockefeller Archive Center study in 2004 documents an incomplete list of 72 major institutions that the family has created or endowed up to the present day. Apart from their established contribution in education and health, over the generations the Rockefeller family has also created more than 20 national parks and open spaces. Uh, America's largest conservation organization, the National Audubon Society, claimed in 2005 that cumulatively no other family in America has made the contribution to conservation that the Rockefeller family has made. So how should we remember Rockefeller? Some lump him into the category of America's great robber barons. Others regard him as the original great philanthropist. The enduring image that I most like is of him in his later life, giving away dimes to adults and nickels to children, wherever he went. He even gave a dime as a playful gesture to men like tire mogul Harvey Firestone. It's almost as if he was saying, it's the principle of giving that matters most. It does not matter how much you give, but it does matter that you give, with a generous heart. The Wheels of Wealth The Rockefeller story is a good one to introduce the age of philanthropy, not only because of John Dee's iconic status as a tycoon and philanthropist, but also because his life and views on charity embody much of the philanthropic attitudes that still prevail today in business. At the heart of the age, and its chief agent, charitable CSR, is the notion of giving back to society. Rather interestingly, this presupposes that you have taken something away in the first place. Charitable CSR embodies the principle of sharing the fruits of success, irrespective of the path taken to achieve that success. It is the idea of post-wealth generosity, of making lots of money first and then dedicating oneself to the task of how best to distribute those riches by way of leaving a legacy. Of course, the ideals of charity and philanthropy predate Rockefeller. Like greed, charity is probably as old as humanity itself, and right from the beginning there is an element of enlightened self-interest. For example, in the Hindu religious text, the Rig Veda, dating from around 1500 to 900 BC, we are told, If it is expected of every rich man to satisfy the poor implorer, let the rich person have a distant vision, for a rich man of today may not remain rich tomorrow. Remember that riches revolve from one man to another as revolve the wheels of a chariot. Similar in the Upanishads, another of the Hindu scriptures, it states, Like in a well, the more you fetch, the more water oozes. The more you give, the more you get. This generosity is mandatory to every individual. Hurry to promise or pledge to help. Turning to the Far East, Confucius said, When wealth is centralized, the people are dispersed. When wealth is distributed, the people are brought together. Hence, a man of humanity is one who, in seeking to establish himself, finds a foothold for others, and who, desiring attainment for himself, helps others to attain. When he was asked, is there one word which may serve as a rule of practice for all one's life? 
Confucius is said to have replied, Is not reciprocity such a word? What you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. This so-called golden rule, which we find in all the world's major religions, has come to represent the very essence of charity. In fact, the word charity derives from the Latin caritas, which means preciousness, dearness, or high price. In Christian theology, caritas became the standard Latin translation for the Greek word meaning an unlimited kindness to all others. Hence, in St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we read in the King James Version of the Bible of faith, hope, and charity. Of course, it is not only giving that is important, but also the nature of giving. There is a Jewish proverb that states, When you give for the cause of charity and health, it is gold. When you give in sickness, it is silver. When you give after death, it is lead. Islam also has a strong tradition of charity. Zakat, or almsgiving for the purposes of alleviating poverty and helping those less fortunate, is one of the five pillars of Islam. The practice is generally in the form of an annual tithe or tax of 2.5% of an individual's wealth, although the percentage can vary by country and tradition, and it includes money made through business, savings and income. The zakat must also be above an agreed minimum, which is said to be around $2,640, or the equivalent in any other currency. As important as the collection of zakat in a community is, its fair distribution among the needy is even more important. Another form of charitable action by Muslims is sadaqah, which literally means righteousness and refers to the voluntary giving of alms or charity. These ancient traditions are considered to be a personal responsibility of all Muslims, practiced out of love for humanity, to ease the economic hardship of others and eliminate inequality. There are numerous other religious and cultural variations on the theme. Philanthropy in Latin America typically revolves around the idea of charitable giving for poverty alleviation. In Eastern Europe, Bulgarian communities have, over the years, raised donations to build churches, schools and cultural centres. In India, Gandhi's trusteeship concept has been adapted and applied to welfare acts. In Mexico, there is a community who still live in the mountains in the state of Chihuahua and use the expression korima, which means to share resources in times of stress. In Southern Africa, Ubuntu is the practice of humanism based on the collectivist notion that I am a person through other people, and so on all around the world.